I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and the Asia-Pacific region. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. This is a special extra pod. It's an event that was recorded here at the ANU this week, and it's part of a series of live panel discussions looking at the Australian federal election. It's a live event, so the audio isn't our usual studio quality, but it's an outstanding discussion that we didn't really want you to miss out on. First up, you're going to hear from the event's moderator, Catherine McGrath, and she will introduce the panellists, Professor Russell Grun from the ANU College of Health and Medicine, Professor John Hewson from Crawford, Professor Anna Moore, who's the Director in Space and Director at the Advanced Instrumentation and Technology Centre, Professor Michael Wesley from the ANU College of Asia and the Pacific, and last but certainly not least, Crawford School Director, Professor Helen Sullivan. And if you're hungry for more sizzling election analysis, why not check out our brand new podcast? It's called Mark Kenny's Democracy Sausage. Each Monday, Mark gathers an expert panel to discuss the week's election campaign. You can find links to it in the show notes for this pod or by visiting our website, policyforum.net. We'll be back with our regular pod on Friday in which we look at the crucial role of energy policies in Australia's federal election. But for now, sit back, put the headphones on and enjoy this great event. Well, thank you very much for joining us with this incredible panel. I think we've got the star professors here, quite frankly. We've had a wonderful four weeks, but we really have the star professors with us tonight at the National Press Club. Now, you might have seen the leaders. Last week, the leaders' debate was here. I think a forerunner to tonight's event. (laughs) And I think having an ANU panel at the National Press Club is a little bit like the Canberra version, perhaps, of uh, the TV Logies Awards. In that we like a little bit of politics in Canberra, but I think more than anything we like deep political engagement and discussion that actually makes us think, understand and helps us make sense of the political world that we're in now. So the campaign began with uh, the parties neck and neck but Labor ahead as it has been consistently in the polls and it finishes this week currently with news poll with Labor ahead 51-49. So it has been close all the way through. Um, but the polls have consistently had Labor ahead. What will happen in the new next few days and what will happen on Election Day, obviously, um, we shall have to wait and see. But really what we have here is the best um, professors to talk about, as, as uh, Brian Schmidt said, serious 
and robust discussion. So we'll get it underway. First of all, to introduce the panel, can I introduce Professor Russell Gruen, the Dean of ANU Health and Medicine, Professor Michael Wesley, Professor of International Affairs and Dean of the College of Asia and the Pacific, Professor Helen Sullivan, the Director of the Crawford School of Public Policy, Professor John Hewson, who is the Chair of the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute at the Crawford School, and Professor Anna Moore, the Director of the ANU Institute for Space. Can you please welcome them all? And when you registered, you had a chance to indicate what politics, what, what policy areas were of the most interest. And what the statistics showed us were that in this order, number one, climate change, that reflects public that reflects all uh, current opinion polls in this area, and it's reflected what people have said at these panels um, every week. Climate change, followed by economy, environment, obviously all three of those are interrelated too, it's what our audiences have been telling us. Uh, science research, foreign policy, then in order, education, health, Indigenous affairs, immigration, tax policy, sorry John Houston, way down the end there, of interest, and final area of interest, national security. So we're going to start with John Hewson. Now, Professor John Hewson is perhaps the most uh, media-friendly of all of our panellists. I asked John how many interviews he had this week, and um, what, five, six, seven so far, and it's only Tuesday, John? Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Now, John, as you know, was a former opposition leader, but independently of all of that, he is a Professor of Economics and the Chair of the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute at the ANU. You might wonder how he has time to even attend a National Press Club ANU event, but he does, and he loves it, and it's just great to have that insight. So, John, I'd like to start with you. What do you think is going to happen on Saturday? <laughs> I have to start with the first difficult question, right? And I, I'm not the person to ask because I lost an election. <laughs> I know what losing looks like. Um, I must say that um, you talk about the polls. I think the Labor Party has been in front in polls for 70 or 80 times. Um, both um, Abbott and Turnbull made uh, the num number of news poll losses uh, benchmarks, I guess, of their performance. Uh, you'd have to say that Labor is likely to win. The question is how much, and it's very difficult to judge because, uh, and I'm not ducking the question, just it's difficult because I think the preferences will go all over the place and I think it makes it very difficult to judge. I mean, the last new couple of news polls, for example, being kind to um, the Murdoch media, the polls were managed. They change the way they do the distribution of preferences to give you 49.51. Is it really 49.51? I suspect it's a little wider than that. Um, that says to me that the Labor Party will win by somewhere between... Well, if you look at the numbers, I guess the Labor Party's got 72 notional seats today after the redistributions and the Liberal, Party has, Liberal National Parties have 73 so the Liberal Party, National Party, need uh, three or four to govern with a speaker, and the Labor needs four or five to govern with a speaker. I suspect the worst outcome for Labor will be a net four. Uh, I think they could probably easily get uh, eight or ten or more, depending on the distribution of those preferences. Um, I think preferences are very difficult to judge in this election. I mean, there's a lot of focus on, for example, the deal done with One Nation or a deal done with Palmer. Well, they haven't worked too well in the past. I mean, I do remember the Queensland state election where 
There was a very tight deal between the LNP and One Nation, and One Nation preferences ended up electing about two or three Labor members, which gave her government. Um, and um, if Palmer, um, if there's a deal with Palmer, uh, for every thousand uh, that he takes off them in primary votes, you get back about 500. Not a very sensible thing to deal with them. I just don't think people are influenced by deals and how to vote cards anymore. I haven't manned a polling booth for a long time, but in the recent New South Wales state election, I manned a polling booth, and I was staggered at how many people, very, very significant percentage of people who just said, I don't want any paperwork, just went straight in, I made up my mind. And uh, I think that's indicative of why you've got one in, one in six today who've already pre-polled. Mm. It'll probably be one in four by Saturday. Thanks, 25% of people will have made up their minds, so... I guess that's what makes it hard to tell, but uh, they, in the old days we used to say if they pre-poll, the votes will go in favour of the incumbent. I suspect not this time. Thanks, John. All right, I just want to let you know, too, we've got two people on the panel who particularly have a political outlook as well as a policy outlook. One is obviously John Hewson, the other is Michael Wesley. So we're going to finish this. When we get down to the end of this row, we're going to ask Michael the same question. But in between, we've got some policy experts and a chance to look at the policies that have been making news and are shaping Australian policy going forward. Now, Professor Anna Moore is the director of the ANU Institute for Space. You might know that the ANU has three key institutes that are new, looking at multidisciplinary ways of looking at big issues. Space is one of them. Anna is the chief of that. And this institute is the front door to ANU multidisciplinary space capability. And this is going to be a huge area of potential economic growth for Australia, but Anna has also been involved in the implementation and the development of government policy on this. So, Anna, looking at the election campaign, how much has something like space featured? And is the average voter, do you think, aware of what's going on? And what have the political parties been saying? Um, so hi everyone. Um, uh, amazingly, a lot I think is the short answer. I didn't think space would be such a such a, a topic for an election campaign. <laughs> so it has been. So I'm absolutely delighted that um, people are taking it very, uh, you know, such gusto behind it. Um, so um, so just to add a bit of context, the last two years has um, been a wonderful time for if you're Australian and interested in space. Um, so we now have a, um, in only about 18 months, we now have a, a space agency. Um, every state is, you know, has um, identified capability and where, where they want to be in the future. And, um, and so harnessing this together as under one national banner is really the most important thing for us to be doing right now. Um, so uh, both sides of the, of the house have been very supportive so far. In, um, uh, in this capability uh, for Australia, where we find ourselves now in a new, um, you know, new space, a new sort of paradigm for space, uh, which means that it's very exciting for anyone coming into the market, as it were. So the cheaper access, the fact that we can do lots of constellations, which hasn't been around before, it's changed the paradigm of what we can do. And so Australia coming in right now with its capability, it's not having to compete with the 50 years of experience that otherwise we would have to do. We can see new opportunities that are relevant to us now. So it's really exciting. And we found support on both sides. Um, uh, so um, what would be good to see, though, as I think we're part, partly here today to talk about what we'd like to see in the first 100 days, is actually 
uh, both serious investment for the future behind this capability if we really want to grow the industry from 3.7 to the 12 billion in this year dollars we actually want to do, that takes a serious investment. And I haven't heard that from either side, really, how they're going to do that. So I'm going to be really interested in, in that story. And also, you know, how to do this properly. How do you take all the key capability, the laser communications, the deep space communications, the medical, the med tech that Russell's doing next to me, um, the space law, all these capabilities that we have, how do you actually you know, get that out there and create a new industry around it effectively and quickly? So those two things I'm actually going to be really interested in hearing about. That's great. Uh, Professor Russell Gruen, welcome to the ANU. Welcome. You. New, newish, very newish. newish. Um, so Russell has taken over as the new Dean of ANU uh, College of Health and Medicine. So again, welcome. Uh, Russell is a surgeon and academic, a long history of involvement in medicine and public policy. Uh, he, your PhD, Russell, was in uh, specialist medical services in remote Indigenous communities. So very involved in a long time in those sorts of issues but also in safe surgery, anaesthesia and, of course, a trauma specialist as well. Um, you're recently back from four years in Singapore helping open and develop new medical and hospital facilities there. Looking at this election, you've spoken in the past about the need for policies to be very much based on goal orientation rather than resource allocation, so i.e. I, not just dollars, thank you very much, but some programs there. What have you seen so far in the election campaign? Well, thanks, Catherine. The... The discourse, of course, has been largely around financing and, and particularly the legitimate concerns of out-of-pocket costs for patients, which, of course, is all about activity-based funding. That is the, the costs to people for services, for drugs, for procedures and so on. But nothing about the quality of services and, and nothing about sort of bigger picture health goals for the nation. I think it's hard to have a genuine conversation about that sort of thing in the context of an election campaign. But as a nation, we need to have that conversation. You know, while we're one of the healthiest nations in the world, we still have some big health problems. Yeah. Chronic diseases, Indigenous health, mental health, asylum seeker health are all good examples. And countries around the world are looking at the sorts of policy levers that exist to improve the the quality of services that are provided and the appropriateness of services. So oh, I guess most, make no mistake, Australians love Medicare. Mm -hmm. we, we love our Medicare. It served us very well as a system of, of universal health coverage. But just as our population has changed since 1975, you know, older, more chronic disease particularly, our Medicare needs a bit of tinkering to come up to date. And um, while many of my colleagues and, and others are wedded to the fee-for-service model. There are lots of GPs that are genuinely struggling under activity-based um, fee-for-service type arrangements. And it's not that the, the government hasn't tried. In, in the last term, we've seen the introduction of healthcare homes as a policy, and that, that's really a, what we call a capitation system, where the more expensive patients, patients with at least two chronic diseases, have their total funding pooled and the general practitioner is given the, the responsibility for working out what they think the best care for those patients is. The problem was there was no extra investment in that that went with that new policy, and as a result, it was really a policy failure. The the, um, about a third of the practices that signed up to do it um, pulled out. And, uh, and it wasn't that it wasn't a great idea. 
It just it was an implementation failure and not well thought through. And this is, I think, where ANU as a university comes in. You know, we, we are um, leading along with the ACT Health and uh, Canberra Health Services and New South Wales Health and with University of Canberra and University of Wollongong, a population-based network that can be used to pilot new policy interventions like this. It involves the communities, the health services, primary care and hospital, emergency and elective, public and private, ambulance services, Indigenous health services and consumer groups all coming together that's to form a system that spans 220,000 square kilometres from the beach to west of Wagga. It includes retirement towns, it includes drought-stricken farms, it includes population centres, includes Indigenous and desert-type communities, all in a, a network of data sharing, which is an ideal... And using the academic research, research to to formulate the best way to deliver those sorts Correct. of services. Correct, so using yeah. all the expertise across mm. the universities to be able to study genuine policy interventions and to tweak and tinker with these things. Thanks, Russell. We desperately need this sort of capability it's great. in this country. People want to talk about the election, of course, and election policies and things that have been considered, but it's also a chance to, to showcase some of the work ANU is doing and see how that relates to the development of policy over time. And, of course, that takes me to the Crawford School, which is at the centre of this. Professor Helen Sullivan, good evening. Welcome. Okay. Helen is the Director of the Crawford School for Public Policy, which is the home of public sector education and the development of policy experts Australia-wide and into the Asia-Pacific and internationally. So right at the centre of policy development is Helen's team, Helen's educators, working with Australians on that. In 2013, Helen founded the Melbourne School of Government, which was a cross-university, multidisciplinary, externally orientated institution focusing on impact. She's brought that skill definitely to the ANU. And also in Melbourne, Helen pioneered the Pathway to Politics program, great interest in gender equity. Uh, Helen, looking at the election, what are the main things, particularly from a public policy, democracy participation perspective, what do you see? Well, the, the wonderful thing about Crawford is that we are awash with policy experts on almost everything from, you know, people like John on, on, on tax and transfer and losing elections uh, to people who... Um, I, can we just say, because actually you're John's boss, aren't you? I, I mean, John, John, the school is part of... This is, you know, John Houston does many, many things. But it's just, you know, as chair of the Tax and Transfer Institute, John, you have to answer to Helen. It's my boss. <laughs> um, no, and John is a, is a huge asset to the school and uh, somebody I would not want to lose. Um, but we do have a, a, a great diversity of experts and they are not shy of sharing their expertise and that's fantastic. And many of them have expertise in the kinds of issues that are, are really key to this election. How wonderful it is that we're talking about climate change in this election and we have a bunch of people at Crawford who, who work on that. We have a range of, of economists. We have co economists of all kinds who will talk about all sorts of issues um, as well as geographers and political scientists and, and all manner of people. Um, well, that gets me to, to Catherine's question, though, is that my area of work, state-society relations, is the kind of thing that never gets talked about at elections, and probably quite rightly so, because what I study and what I um, am interested in is the way in which we as, as societies uh, develop the instrumentation and the institutions that we 
that we need in order to govern ourselves in the way that we wish to be governed. Um, so that takes us very much to the, um, the area of, of, of implementation and instrumentation that, that, that Russell was talking about. Um, and that can all sound terribly dry, terribly dull, and um, awfully boring, and certainly not something you'd want to campaign on. But having said that, uh, we have, for the last 30 years, um, in advanced liberal democracies as well as, as elsewhere, uh, been in the thrall of a particular approach to public policy and public policy making that has captured us and captured how we think about uh, what policy is, what it should look like, what its foundations are, and who should be involved in it. Um, and that has led us into a particular preoccupation with how we might use markets, how we create markets, how we might uh, focus above all else on things like outsourcing and contracting. Um, and that has meant that we have become very used very quickly to using a particular set of levers to influence policy or even to shape policy. And those things have become the truth very quickly um, in Australia and, and elsewhere. Um, and that is fine as long as it works, except, of course, that nothing works all the time for everybody. Um, and while these are not things I would expect to be talked about in the election, I do think that in the public policy environment, we are now on the cusp of thinking we need to think rather differently about the policy instrumentation that we have. And just again, to pick up on one of Russell's examples, um, we've had numerous attempts to think about how we engage citizens, all of us, as users of services, as people who pay tax, as people who benefit in different ways, as people who care for others. Um, that's a, an expected uh, both responsibility that we have as active citizens, but also um, it's a way of perhaps getting better services that are shaped more appropriately to user needs. Those things don't necessarily work terribly well with markets. Uh, and so if we're wanting to engage much more in what we might call in the jargon co-production, if we want to involve users much more in thinking about choice and control in services, then we have to think about the existing implementation and, and uh, policy frameworks that we have and whether they're appropriate. So while the work that I do uh, is, is, can be terribly dull, um, it is also critically important because it's one of the reasons why um, in Australia voting is compulsory. So, you know, you have a a reasonably high turnout. Um, now, you can also say you don't want to vote for any of the above, and that's fantastic. Um, but Australia is also suffering its own crisis of, of trust in public institutions. And I would argue that one of the reasons for that is we have become so divorced as a society from our governing institutions, and that we need to think um, very differently about how we maintain not just the health of our governmental system, you know, this is not a question which is about machinery of government changes and which department belongs to whom and, you know, which bit of what uh, political organisations get, gets influence where. This is much more about how do we as a democratic society see through our governing institutions that democracy being enacted every day. Thanks, Helen.
That's great. No, that's true. And I think that's one of the key questions, isn't it? Engagement, and you're linking it there to the um, visibility and accessibility of our institutions. I think that'll be something to really discuss during the evening. Um, Welcome now to Professor Michael Wesley. Good evening, Michael. Michael is the Professor of International Affairs and Dean of the College of Asia and the Pacific. Michael has a background at Griffith University in UNSW. He was an Assistant Director General of Transnational Issues at the Office of National Assessments and was the Executive Director at the Lowy Institute. Um, Michael, I'm going to ask you what I asked John. What's going to happen on Saturday? Now, you do have a record of writing on international affairs, obviously extensively, but also on politics and where international affairs and politics intersect. So here goes um, my attempt to magnificently not answer your question. <laughs> okay. um, I think there's, there's essentially two ways of uh, looking and thinking about election outcomes. One is um, what I would call the conventional way, concentrating on who's going to win, who gets the most votes, who gets the most seats, how big their mandate is, what their policy platform is, and using that to think about the next three years and beyond. But I think there's another way which I always find more fun to think about, and that is um, to, to approach an election campaign as a genuine conversation. In fact, the only genuine conversation we have between our political leaders and the electorate, um, where the political the politicians are actually listening to people, they're actually appealing directly to people, they're walking through shopping malls and down streets and so on. And so I think that each election campaign is not only a celebration of this wonderful thing called democracy that we have, but it's something that shapes a national conversation and a national consciousness for the next three years and beyond. And I think when I, when I look back, I think that um, there have been um, uh, several times in the recent past when election campaigns... Uh, the nature of the conversation that has has been had between the political class and the people have thereafter shaped uh, the politics of uh, the years ahead. A couple of examples for you. The election of 2001, won by the Howard government, an incumbent government, uh, it was an election that was defined by national security, by fear of the outside world, by fear of globalisation and by increased attention to cultural values and cultural differences. Uh, a contrasting example, I think, was the election of, two, of, of uh, 2007, uh, won by the opposition at that stage. This was a switch in the national conversation. It became uh, a conversation about ideas, about creativity, uh, about uh, a return to the big picture for Australia. And I guess what I would say about this election campaign as I've watched it and I've watched uh, the conversation unfold is that there are, I think, lots of signs uh, that this may be one of those defining campaigns that changes the national conversation for the next three years and beyond. And I'd like to uh, emphasise, I guess, four elements that I think are particularly intriguing for me in terms of switching the national conversation. Number one, I don't think national security is as potent as it has been for the past 20 years or so. I think that uh, the government has tried to run hard on national security and border protection and all of those issues, and I think it's been a damp squib for the government. I don't think it's resonated with the electorate, which tells us something really interesting about how the national conversation in the future is being, is being shaped. Uh, secondly, 
I think the power of dog whistling uh, has been much decreased. We've had plenty of attempts at dog whistling, be it racial dog whistling, be it homophobic dog, dog whistling, and what we've found is that it's become a self-harming thing, that uh, the candidates that have tried it have been called out, uh, they've been repudiated by their own parties, even Pauline Hanson, my God, um, and they've had to uh, step down from the campaign. The third issue is that generational issues are starting to become really prominent in this election campaign and really defined in this election campaign in a way they haven't been in previous campaigns. What do I mean by that? Climate change, housing affordability, intergenerational equity have become really important issues. And this, to me, is setting up a national conversation and a, and a, and a national political con con contest in the future in really uh, important uh, ways. The fourth issue is really con uh, really uh, concerning to me, and that is the inability of either side of politics uh, in this election campaign, to my mind, to deal with the gorilla in the room, the really big issue, uh, the major issue that this country faces, which is how Australia positions itself in the burgeoning rivalry between the United States and China. Uh, the downturn in our relationship with our major trading partner, uh, the increasingly fraught relationship we've got with our uh, major alliance partner. Neither side of politics has wanted to go anywhere near that. I can kind of understand the electoral logic of why they haven't, but it means that I think we're setting ourselves up for a blundering approach to dealing with this major uh, challenge in the years ahead. Michael, thank you. All right. Well, that's a great start. Um, I should mention that this uh, evening is being recorded and it will be uploaded to the website. You'll be able to catch that uh, at the ANU election website. And you can follow us on social media using the hashtags AUJoin and OzVotes. Follow us on Twitter at ANU events. We'll be asking your questions shortly, so do think about what they might like what they might be. And we've also got some of the questions that were put in via the online poll when you registered. So the first hundred days, what will it look like? What will the government, whichever persuasion it is, be doing in the first hundred days? Well Bill Shorten has said that if he wins the election, one focus will be on moving quickly towards wage rises. The government current government says it will be moving towards implementing the plan announced on Sunday to provide mortgage support for first homeowners who couldn't otherwise do so. So let's look at that first of all. John Houston, the announcement of that on Sunday, was, this, was it as out left field as it appeared to be? Have you heard of this being discussed? It's obviously in New Zealand, but have you heard it discussed around uh, economic levers in Australia seriously? Do you think it was decided on an envelope on Friday evening or what? <laughs> I think the first thing that will happen in the first 100 days is that, uh, suddenly they'll be struck by reality, that a lot of what's been said and done and promised actually can't or won't be delivered uh, because uh, of the position of the Senate and the outcome in the lower house or because they really didn't think through the detail of a lot of what they promised. And I think you're right about the housing um, issue um, initiative. It was definitely one of um, Morrison's own. He obviously didn't take it to Cabinet. His excuse is, of course, Cabinet doesn't meet during an election campaign, but there are telephones and there are other ways of, <laughs> of communicating that. He just announced it. It hadn't been thought through in its detail. What he didn't expect is that the Labor Party would immediately say, yeah, we'll do that too. <laughs> 
sort of neutered it as having its particular advantage. I don't think it's been thought through. There are so many of these schemes being introduced over the years to help first homeowners. It usually doesn't have the impact that's desired. Quite often the developers of homes just put the price up and take advantage of whatever implicit subsidy one way or another. At a time where household debt is a major problem in this country, I talk about reality, but we have the second highest level of household debt in the world. Nearly 200% of household disposable income, 120% of GDP, and you're encouraging people to take even more debt. And uh, the individual will be responsible for the debt, even though part of it will be underwritten by the government. And we just had a Royal Commission which has exposed the fact that the banks, the big four in particular, had lent a lot of people a lot of money that they couldn't afford. This is another example of encouraging people to take on a lot of money that they can't afford. And, um, and uh, I guess if you look at the hard numbers, it won't. <coughs> a lot of people will not <coughs> excuse me, qualify for it. So it will be a relatively small number of people that qualify. It will make a marginal difference if indeed it matters at all. So, I mean, as background, I see Morrison as an advertising guy. He's got a pocket full of slogans. You ask him a question, he'll give you a slogan. Don't ask him a second question and expect any detail because you won't get it. And that, to me, has been a feature of this campaign, that neither side has been prepared to provide much detail about their key initiatives. In fact, they've gone to great lengths, whether it's in debates or press conferences or whatever, not to talk about the detail. So that's all got to be done in the first 100 days. So at each event, we've asked people what interested them. So just a show of hands, uh, how many people do we have here who would be voters under the age of 35? That's a good number. Keep your hand up if you think that the Liberal policy that Labor has now matched is interesting to you. <laughs> By interesting, I mean if you think it would be best. Okay, and how many of the group here of the under-35s uh, think that climate change is the most important issue in the election? Great. And what about the rest of the audience too? Climate change, how does that rate? Hand up if you think it's about... Yeah. So that's we've asked people at each... Um, each uh, event and it's been pretty similar. Uh, Helen, in terms of you and public policy and the election campaign, how well do you think the you know, issues that have been discussed are things like a, an independent commission against corruption, a federal ICAC? In the first 100 days, what kinds of things do you think either side of politics would be dealing with? Um, okay, well, um, the, I was thinking about this earlier and I thought, you know, the first 100 days, you know, it's a pretty artificial construct, but anyway, let's go with it. Um, how about if we said in the first 100 days um, the government didn't do anything but just waited and thought and listened um, rather than running in and trying to uh, develop um, very quickly uh, projects which either won't work because, you know, very uh, good rationale that, that John has given for why some of these policies just aren't well thought through and don't add up and could never happen, um, or because uh, immediately people will get stuck into trying to reorganise the, the machinery of government, and however much people tell you they won't, they can't help themselves. Um, they just, they cannot see a set of government departments without thinking that would look better over there and we can put that over there. And before you know it, you know, four months has gone. So um, I'm strongly of the view that doing nothing uh, for 100 days might actually be good for everybody. Um, and in the same way that, you know, if, what is it, a sixth of people can vote 
without really listening to the end of the campaign. Is it a sixth of people? One in six. One in six, yeah. yeah. So Probably one in four. Then, you know, um, if those people can make up their mind without listening to the campaign, then I'm sure um, we can wait uh, while the government, uh, whoever it is, um, you know, figures out uh, maybe um, that what we that what we want uh, or what we say we want, we want is not exactly the same thing um, and that what they can do and what they say they can do are never the same thing. Um, so that would be my one proposition, which I know isn't answering your question. If you push me to what I think the government should do um, within the first 100 days, then I absolutely think um, more action on integrity is absolutely required. It's going to be the coming issue uh, for all governments around the world um, if it isn't already, um, the, the, the challenge of populism from both the left and the right is really focusing on undermining institutions. And, and so integrity and having clear ideas of what public service ethics look like and how their practice is absolutely vital. Um, and the other small thing I'd really like the government to do, which nobody's talked about because who cares, um, is that in, in 1983, Australia led the world in introducing gender budgeting. Wouldn't it be lovely to have that back? Thank you. Uh, Health was arguably the defining issue of the last election, Russell, and uh, this time it hasn't featured so much. In the run-up to the election, the health minister has been very busy giving away a lot of money over the last year or two, and maybe that is why the sting has come out of it. But Labor has promised a health reform commission. Can you tell us, if Labor gets in, what that might look like? And there's been some commentary that there's been no talk about rural and regional health policy. And that's greatly needed. So what are your thoughts on both of those? Yeah. So I think we'd all welcome, for the reasons I outlined before, a health reform commission. Um, I don't think we have any detail around what that's going to cover, apart from the fact that it will look at quality of services and it will look at access to, to services. And it necessarily has a rural and remote component to it. And I think the Labor, Labor Party has had... Um, a view and a policy around expanding and improving rural and remote health. I think it's been a bit of a policy vacuum for the coalition in this election campaign. But I, you know, it really depends on how much I think they're willing to listen, as, as Helen has said, and, and really look and really ask people within the department and take take reference from the experts in the community. I, I think there has been a tendency for some governments um, to actually make a lot of policy and give out money on the run without referring to their, their department experts. And I, you know, working with the Department of Health, I know what quality people there are in those departments and how much they've given to, to understanding and working out how to improve Australians' health. And so what do you think? What would you be if resources? the new health minister called you in? What would you be saying you'd like to see them do as their start of work? S- spend that 100 days listening, exploring the department, asking his, his and her, her, her experts, and, uh, and then coming, of course, to ANU to continue that discourse. <laughs> Excellent. Because... <laughs> now, that's a good idea. <laughs> and they can hear about the new way you're looking at regional health delivery with New South Wales and ACT and what you're learning. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, one, there's one thing that has been absent in the campaign period which featured strongly late last year, and that's been asylum seeker health. Oh and well-being, the mental, mental and physical health. And it's been quite interesting to, to see that disappear. It's not that the problem's gone away. It's just that Labor's made themselves a small target in this area. I think the coalition's generally concerned that 
raising it will bring Peter Dutton back into the fold and it's left it up to the Greens to be the ones that are talking about asylum seeker health. But I think, still think it's a, it's a crucial issue for us to deal with. And that more broadly, the mental health and well-being of the nation is still... Because you, you were talking about healthcare challenge. homes. The, uh, the government introduced, I think the term before last, a new whole, wholly inter, interrelated um, mental health program, but there have been problems with rolling that out too, haven't they? That has been less than successful. <laughs> I think mental health in Australia has been characterised by the, what's been called by some of the missing middle. There's the general practice-based... Um, stuff and then there's the involuntary institutional based for the very severely affected and and really a very a missing set of services in between. But there was a promise that that would be there when they announced that and that didn't happen. It hasn't happened and and it's um you know it's a, it's a huge group of people that could fit into that. There's a lot of of morbidity of time off work of lost productivity for that group of people and we we desperately need to find good solutions. The big problem with that is that it's fallen between the Commonwealth and state arguing as to whose responsibility it is. And this is a characteristic of our system, the the dual level of system and we need to find ways that patients don't fall between those gaps. Okay, thank you. Anna, you were talking earlier about the the world of space in Australia. Just going back to the kinds of work that's going to need to start in that first 100 days, uh, within the last few months the government has announced that Adelaide is the headquarters of the new Space Centre for Australia, but there's a lot of connections that are going to have to be made in all sorts of government, private enterprise, uh, Mm -hmm. small business, large business, etc. Can you outline how... How were you involved in the development of this space plan from the ANU perspective and what kinds of things do you think are going to have to happen the minute that election's over? Uh, so um, two years ago um, I was um, uh, one of seven people who were, um, formed the um, space ex- what was called Space Expert Reference Group um, and of which um, Megan Clark was the chair of that panel um, which was a wonderful experience for me, having just been poached in a, the nicest possible way, looking at Brian, um, from Caltech to ANU, um, so um, to run the largest astronomy and space group in the country. So it was a really good experience for me. And so as part of that group, we, um, we received something like 600 submissions from the whole country, um, anyone who, from industry, from R&D, public, schools... Um, really, um, uh, it was just a really interesting, you know, it was a really wonderful experience for me to go through. And just seeing this wealth of capability that was there, and it just wasn't coordinated, though, because there was no agency to do it. And so everyone was kind of just like, just off on their own and doing their own brilliant thing, but at a small level. Um, so it was clearly, um, clearly untapped. And so out of this, out of this process, we wrote a report um, which outlined the capability the leapfrog technologies, um, not just in the techie side, but also in the legal side. Because it's law, big numbers, medicine, isn't it? To share with us what, what kind of budget services. you're talking about. I'm sorry? What kind of budget, what kind of potential is the size of the economy related to space for Australia? So the global economy is currently around about $400 billion per year and growing at a, um, more than 10% a year. Um, and it's assessed at something like, I don't know, a few trillion by 2030. That's kind of the market we're going into um, Australia in 2016, uh, the revenue from space, which was mostly TV, pay, pay for, you know, TV commercial services, uh, is around about the 3.7 billion, which was 0.8% of its GDP. Um, 
And so um, it was highlighted that at the very minimum, we need to get to the one, you know, 1.8%, basically. It's just a starting point. Um, so in, in, then the capabilities that were highlighted were um, uh, come from both the uh, geographically where Australia is, the uniqueness of Australia. It's a huge landmass, uh, covers many time zones, many latitudes. So you've got, um, uh, you have great potential for launch, for communications. You have uh, great potential for the next generation communications, which will all be based around lasers because you have a higher bandwidth transmission capability and you can make it secure. If you use radio beams, they spread very quickly. If you use laser beams, they're pointed. And so it's much harder to intercept these. So, you know, in... X years, I don't know how many, how many decades it will be. The whole world will have moved to laser communications. That's how we'll communicate. And we want Australia to be right there in the centre of that. And as, I mean, as an astronomer originally, this isn't really astronomy, is it? I mean, this is, but it connects with astronomy. Yeah, so, um, yes, absolutely. And so astronomy and space go hand in hand here, absolutely. And again, um, astronomy, I mean, my VC is a Nobel Prize winning astronomer, so I feel like I have to say this as well. <laughs> But Australia uh, leads the world in astronomy. There's no doubt about it. And it, it does so for many reasons. Um, it has a very talented scientific community. It's, um, it's the MacGyverness. I'm not sure anyone under 35 understands what I'm talking about. But, but it's that level of um, intuitiveness, it's inventiveness of its people, um, means that we own the technology and we're able to reinvent ourselves over and over again. And that's really important because it keeps us after 50 years still leading the world in radio, in optical and infrared astronomy. Thanks, Anna. That's we want to do the same in space. Definitely. Great. So bring you back to the first 100 days, what kind of interlocking structures are going to need to be a big focus for the new government? Interlocking? St structures for the space industry as it sets up this new so, well, model. So um, while everyone else is thinking about what to do, which is awesome, like we're ready to go. So day one, I'm, I'm happy. I really do think everyone should really think about what they're doing because we, we already know what we want to do because we started this process two years ago. And so um, the agency itself is, is uh, part of the Department of Industry, Innovation and Science, and it is mandated to answer some of those questions itself. How, how does it unite government, defense, the states behind a national growth story for, for space? And um, if I could wish for something, um, I don't want to get too political here, but, oh, I should be, shouldn't I? That's what I'm supposed to be. But, but I have to say, it, it recently it got a little state versus state in the space area, which didn't help. In case you didn't follow it, it South really, Australia won, it and everyone else wanted it as well. Yeah, yeah, because it's really a national story. If you want to grow the industry, and you, you need to tap into the capability across the whole country, okay? And that's the only way it's going to work. So it was a little... The community itself were a little sort of regretful about how that went. And so if I could wish for something, it would be that we get back to what we're supposed to Great. be doing, Anna, thank which you. is to really do the national, Great. the national story. Well, we're going to come to your questions next, but we're going to go back to Michael Wesley. Michael, you talked about the elephant in the room. Um, what either Prime Minister, either Prime Minister um, uh, Morrison or Shorten, are going to have to deal with uh, Chinese leader and the US leader? What do you see as the main features of those interactions? What, what, from what we see now, how are each going to approach that? Uh, yeah, look, um, 
So if there's a Labor victory on the weekend, just imagine the delicious prospect of the first meeting between Bill Shorten and Donald Trump in Osaka uh, at the G20 meeting. Because the G20 is the next month. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so Bill Shorten, a former trade union uh, leader, uh, meeting with you know meeting the the great capitalists. That's. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's going to be great fun. Um, so a couple of things. Uh, firstly... Um, there is going to be a test coming out of China for any new government. Um, uh, the Chinese tend to see democratic changes of government uh, or non-democratic changes of government when we get rid of one prime minister and put another one in, in their place um, as opportunities. So they're often opportunities to reset the relationship, but they're often also opportunities to test a new government. And so I think one of the things that uh, we need to... Uh, be mindful of is that there's going to be a test coming uh, from Beijing for uh, a new prime minister or, you know, a relatively new prime minister in the first 100 days. The second thing is uh, that uh, the first 100 days is going to see the onset of what what we refer to as summit season. Uh, The G20 in Osaka, uh, it's going to be followed by APEC and the East Asia Summit. Uh, The UN General Assembly is going to be in there uh, the Pacific Island Forum is going to be in there. This is a, a time, uh, usually an un, often an uncomfortable time, when prime ministers uh, are put in the glare of the media spotlight, interacting with really experienced foreign policy leaders and quite often looking awkward in, in relation to that. So that's going to be a, a really big challenge for um, a, a new prime minister the, or, or a relatively new prime minister. The third issue that is going to be really um, start, starting to come home and having to, to, uh, to be dealt with is the fallout from the US-China trade war, uh, the escalating trade war between the US and China. Uh, I'm relatively pessimistic about where this is going. Uh, I think both sides are starting to escalate demands. I was in the US uh, a few weeks ago uh, there is serious talk within Washington, D.C. about the, de- the decoupling of the economies, particularly the high-tech end of the economies. I think there's a long way to go here before any sort of uh, solution is reached. Australia, I think, has escaped the fallout of the trade war so far um, due to a piece of luck, which was the tailings dam collapse in Brazil in February, which has elevated the iron ore price. It's meant that 40 million tonnes of Brazilian iron ore isn't going to China every year. Um, That means that it's really good for the Australian uh, iron ore industry, the Australian mining industry, and therefore the Australian economy. That can't last, uh, and I think there are some really difficult headwinds coming to the Australian economy and having to be dealt with. So I think that actually the first 100 days in a foreign policy sense for uh, either side of politics is going to be a real challenge to deal with. 
Thank you very much. Great. All right, we're going to go to questions. Catherine, might I come yeah, back? Just, yeah. I, mean, yeah. I know <clears throat> do really want to hear your questions, but it just seems to me that you know what what we've we've heard you know from, from Anna and from Michael. You know, you have the um, if you like the the sort of the gorilla in the room and the gorilla in space. Um, and, and, you know, on the one hand, we have a, a conversation which is about the US, China and where Australia sees itself. And in a way, that conversation, Michael, has been going on for generations. Um, and some of that is about economics and how Australia benefits from digging stuff out the ground. Um, on the other hand, we have this amazing story about space and, you know, whether it is or isn't the final frontier. But, um, but Anna, you know, you're talking about that as, as a growth opportunity. You use that, that language. And uh, as, as a political sociologist, sociologist, I sit here and I think, you know, around the room, people identify climate change as the thing they care most about or the thing they, they do care about. Um, and yet we're still talking about these issues in in a particular paradigm, which is about the economics of growth. Um, and, you know, when we've exhausted the growth that we get from the ground, we're now going to do it in space. And I think that's a profoundly important question for us as a democracy to be thinking about, why aren't we talking about space in, in the general election? You know, go to Michael's idea of a national conversation. Why aren't we as a society thinking you know, what, what are the possibilities? Do we want to monetize space? And if we do, um, what's that going to look like? Um, so it seems to me that, you know, Anne has offered us a really great challenge for, for thinking about not just what we should be talking about at elections, but um, how we should be having the conversation so that we can engage with some of the, the more longer-standing gorillas that, that Michael's been talking about. Great. Thank you, Helen. All right, let's get to some questions. So let's get you to put your hands up high so we can see who'd like to ask questions. So we'll try and get around the room as much as we can. Let's start. We'll start at the back there if we can. We'll come to back and then the front here, and then we'll get over these two, this one over there. So that's great. We'll just start. And um, thanks very much. Just let us know your first name, and off we go. Uh, Thank you. I'm Fiona. And my question's about rural and regional, and, and I was really pleased to hear a number of you talk about the lack of policy, the policy void in rural and regional. And I'm wondering to what extent we're seeing that play out in the rise of um, independence in those areas and the possible decimation of the National Party and, and because of its lack of engagement with the actual issues of the people. Great. Thank you for that. We'll um, bring the microphone down here now. Who wants to... I'm yeah, look, you. um, you're asking me about the National Party, I guess. Um, it's, um, I don't think the National Party really has maintained touch with its electorate at all. Um, you saw that most conspicuously in the uh, postal survey on same-sex marriage, where they confidently predicted they'd have a substantial number of their seats voting no, and 15 of 16 seats voted yes, and some overwhelmingly. Secondly, they don't have a water strategy that is resonating with the electorate. You've seen that in the New South Wales state election where some of their key seats got a 20% swing against them. Thirdly, they don't have a regional development strategy, and I find that staggering. You talk about opportunities. We have um, a, a, a national waste problem with waste building up all over this country as our neighbours won't now import our waste. Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, China... And that is uh, regional. It's a regional challenge, but it's a regional opportunity to have recycling in key regional centres right across the country. We don't have fuel security in this country. You can turn a lot of that waste into diesel or ethanol, uh, some sort of biofuel, 
which is a massive possibility. As it is today, we import all our fuel. 44 ships come from Singapore. If they don't come, we're in strife. We've got about 21 days of fuel security. Yet um, you could have refineries spread across this country, small refineries that would turn a lot of that waste, everything from any form of waste, uh, right through to plastics and other things, which are a particular problem, into biodiesel or, or diesel or uh, diesel alternatives or ethanol or whatever. So I think the National Party's missed a great opportunity. One final comment. In the area of uh, responding to climate change, one of the most important things is to improve the carbon content of the soil. And farmers can easily do that by changing the nature of their farming techniques, shallow tilling, uh, organic rather than chemical fertilisers and so on. And that would give a farmer the opportunity, any individual farmer, to earn a a new income stream every year from selling the carbon credits that that generates into a market system. And that in itself can almost offset most of the emissions we have in this country if we did it properly. And I'm staggered that the National Party has no answers in any of those three areas as an example. And that's why they're not resonating. That's why you will get a large protest vote on Saturday in key National Party seats. And although uh, One Nation and Clive Palmer go in there and will pull a protest vote... They're not offering any solutions either. Thanks, John. All right, question down here. Thanks. Hi, my name's Paul. Uh, one of the things that neither party has been talking about in the election is that they're actually aiming to govern a federation. There are eight other governments uh, in, in Australia and uh, it won't be the first hundred days, it'll be the first week that they'll be having a conversation with the leaders of each of our states and territories. Um, Paradoxically, it was only Anna, our space professor, that uh, mentioned the states in, in her talk, but I'd be very inter- interested too. to hear um, <laughs> on um, you know, federation yep. government. Yep. Russell, you mentioned that as well. Anna, um, in relation to state federal? Russell, do you want to jump oh, in there? So, so, I, so I, have, I have raised it some of the challenges that that poses for effective health policy and you know, Paul, I, I actually would refer people to, to your publications around the difficulties with, with multi-level government. There you go. <laughs> so I know that you're asking Thank me you, a Paul. tough question. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, in, in, it's no more polarised anywhere than I think in health. Yeah. And the buck passing is a fundamental problem within our constitution and the way, the way we are set up. No government has demonstrated they can effectively work with, with the states and territories in the health arena for a whole-of-country solution, and I think that's a tragedy. And I would love to see that being a stretch goal for us as a community. Can I pick up on the, the, the discourse, and I'm really glad that Michael raised the sort of the generational aspects here, because the conversation around growth economic growth in a narrow frame, which has been what our political discourse has been and continues to be, I think in a, in a generational construct may be a tipping point for a change for a different type of conversation around perhaps community wellbeing. You know, in an in a era where the younger voters now are facing an uncertain employment future, you know, not knowing whether they can own their own homes, um, they are... You know, they're focused on well-being. And I think if we go around the room and we said, who feels like their well-being is better now 
than it was 20 years ago, I'll bet you'd find few hands going up. And to that regard, I think there are some... There are some shining lights, and it's not just because the Minister and the Director-General of ACT Health are in the room, but ACT Health is leading with a conversation around wellbeing as a major social policy, as developing a wellbeing index as a measure of societal success. And I think we have to find a point, there will be a point, where that conversation tips away from um, economic growth as being the only thing that matters to a conversation about well-being and actually in climate change, the future of our existence on this planet. And I think probably voters would probably say they've thought that for a while. It's just taking the politicians a while to realise that. Um, Yeah, John, and then there's two questions. Could I add just one point on federation? I think one of the big challenges of government in this country, which was not addressed at all in this campaign, is restructuring federation. The point that she's made about about point scoring and blame shifting between different levels of government. We need to rationalise the structure of government, allocate responsibilities specifically, if you like, to one level of government. It's fundamental to the efficiency of government, but it's also fundamental to issues like tax and welfare reform, where you had overlapping responsibilities and in the end the problems don't get addressed. And I'm surprised that... And there is a mood, I think, to actually do something about it, but it, it just... You know, soon degenerates into just point scoring and blame shifting rather than dealing with the essence of the issue. Great, thank you. Um, we'll get two questions back to back so we can get there. Thank you. Yes, thank yes. you. My name's Wendy. Uh, my question is uh, to mainly address to Dr Helen Sullivan, please, because it's a policy one that came out of the Intergovernmental Science Platform Policy on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services report that's just come out. And most people would see it as, oh, it said something about a million species might go. But it's much, much more than that. I've just written a report on it. And um, why I'm directing it, and it segs beautifully with what you just said before, that we're one of the parts of that report at the end, the global assessment said, what should we do? And the first point is we need to redefine human well-being beyond its narrow basis of economic growth because they're actually talking about a really big shift and change because this particular report that might seem not very relevant to anything, biodiversity and ecosystem services, is actually so relevant that what all life depends on a, what's, what's happening is declining globally at an unprecedented rate in human history. We're eroding the very foundations of our economies, livelihoods, food security, health and quality of life worldwide. Thank you. So that's why I'm directing it to Dr Helen Sullivan in terms of the shift in policy about the well-being. Thank, Thank you, you very much. And we'll just quickly, Helen, while you're thinking about that, we'll get, just have two questions back to back and we have a few people to comment. Thanks. So I'm hoping that this is quite a, a useful follow-up question. Um, I'm a local cardiologist uh, and in terms of health policy for the election, I think the two major health issues are inequality and we know that by improving our social security safety net, we can improve the health and well-being of our community and that's much more effective, I think, than investing in new hospitals or more doctors. But the major health challenge has to be climate change and it's the the elephant in the room in the discussions tonight. It's great to hear some of the ideas coming through. 
And I, I've been involved in quite a lot of conversations over the last month, I guess, particularly focused on the election. One of my staff members said, so, you know, if we were going to take this seriously, if you could do one thing, what would you do to actually address climate change? What would you ask the government to do? What can we do which will make a difference? And, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about energy and energy is part of the problem, agriculture and transportation. So how do we address all three issues? So I guess my question to the panel, and I'm probably particularly interested in John Hewson's view on this, but everybody might have a view. Do, uh, have we developed sufficient uh, political momentum to come up with adequate economic mechanisms to address climate change? Could right. we, for example, bring back in the idea of a carbon tax? Okay. Thanks very much. We'll start with the biodiversity um, report. And Helen, if you can start, then we'll go through the table. Thank yeah, you very was, much. Um, that's a great, a great question. And it was, it was staggering that that report, which, um, uh, and, and, you know, in your, in your words, you said, you know, only a million uh, species, you know, that this is a report that effectively talks about um, the, the, the end game for us all. Um, and it was a report that barely got a headline in the press. Um, and it is staggering just how um, clear it is that if we continue to do what we're doing, um, we are uh, in serious trouble, and and I don't. I, but the problem with it is, of course, that this isn't this isn't the first time we've heard this. You know, scientists are giving us these messages regularly. Uh, this is just the latest one, and it's almost as if, you know, you get to think, well, you know, how how critical, how many species do you know? What will it take? What's the tipping point for us as a, as a as a species to decide enough is enough. And, and, and I'm not sure that we're there yet. And it, it sort of times with your um, question about, well, what can we do? I think before we get to what we can do, we really do need to get to a, um, a political uh, platform, a shared political platform that acknowledges the science, that respects the expertise, and that is prepared to take some pretty serious action. Now, we don't have that. Um, and I'm not telling anybody in this room anything they don't know. So you asked, what do we do as a public policy school? Well, we um, launched our new strategy uh, a couple of weeks ago, and, and one of the key themes for us, we have three key themes now in our strategy, and now academics, as you know, do what they like. They research what they like, they teach what they like. They don't, nobody, you know, nobody becomes an academic to do what they're told. Um, but nonetheless, we have as a, as a community um, identified three things that we really need to... Um, to all focus on in our different ways. One of them is capability. How do we build the skills that are needed to engage in this extraordinary new world we're all living in? One of them is integrity. How do we ensure that we've got the institutions and the behaviours that are going to enable us to have confidence in each other? Um, and the other one is, and the third one is sustainability. And that's not just about environmental sustainability, important though that is. It takes in this broader sense of how do we con construct sustainable societies that have markets or other mechanisms that are used in the service of creating sustainable societies rather than us um, operating in societies that appear to be in the service of market mechanisms. Helen, thank you. Thank you. John Hewson, the voters are way ahead of both sides of politics on this, aren't they? And are economic levers going to be possible post the election? Well, I think to answer that question, I mean, um, we need first and, all, uh, and foremost leadership on the issue of climate. And the first stage of that is to actually move beyond the point scoring and blame shifting that's taking place in the climate, has taken place in the climate wars over the last couple of decades, 
and embrace the concept that we need to make a transition to a low-carbon society and provide the leadership in terms of how that is to be achieved. I was fascinated in the campaign that when um, they looked at uh, the, op the government looked at uh, shortens in climate strategy, the focus was just on growth. What is the impact on growth? How much growth are we going to have to give up? The fact is you probably don't have to give up any if you do it properly. It's a question of focusing on the nature of the transition and leading the debate and building bipartisan support for that. I mean, you've got electoral support. I think 70 to 80% of uh, those polled or surveyed in the last several years have said we want decisive government-led action on climate and um, uh, we want uh, much greater concentration on renewables and yet government's not listening. And I find that absolutely staggering that uh, that, that opportunity has been, has, has been let go. Just on the point about putting a price on carbon, I mean, if you're a genuine liberal, a conservative liberal, who believes in small government and low levels of regulation and reliance on market forces wherever possible, you'd start with the most cost-effective way of delivering an effective transition, that is to put a price on carbon. And if we'd done that, I can, dare I say, had a policy in the early 90s, which I know nobody read, they were distracted by GST, but we called for 20% 20 20 cut in emissions by the year 2000 off a 1990 base. We are nowhere near that yet. If we'd done it then, we'd have a carbon price that nobody would be paying any attention to today. We'd be so far down the transition path, it wouldn't matter. And those opportunities are there, yet we have a, a so-called conservative rump in the government that doesn't believe in small government and and low levels of regulation and market forces. They prefer socialist responses, big sticks, belting energy companies and so on. And do you think That's this what's got to change. Do you think this election is going to bring electoral change to that, that core of people who feel strongly who are against climate change policy? I think if the new Prime Minister were to make a statement along those lines on day one and say that we are going to focus on transition, we're not going to debate it anymore... And to just debate how fast we can do it, what's the most cost-effective way of doing it. Okay, it's going to involve transition. It's going to involve, um, you know, some people losing jobs and being retrained and, and, and supported in a transition to other to other activities. At the same time, you're going to capitalise on a lot of the industries that have been sitting there for decades. And when we have the best resources in wind and solar and uh, graphite and lithium and everything that's fundamental to the, the, the process of developing the cheapest... Um, baseload electricity, for example, in the world and be able to store it cost-effectively and we just burn those opportunities year in, year out. It staggers me that we just uh, let them go. And this is not just a growth question. It's a broader, broader question about, uh, you know, the wellness of society as a whole. If you do it and you move decisively, you'll, do, you'll work, be working on the species front as much as you're working on the economic growth front. John, thank you. Let's have a look again at the hands up of the first voters in this election. Hands up those who are going to be voting in their first election at the back. First and second. No, hands up so we can actually see because we're going to bring the microphone over. Let's, we'll get, we want to hear from you. We really do. We really do. Let's say so hands up. Thanks. There's a couple over here. I'd like you to tell us what issues are important to you and and a question you'd like to ask the panel. So let's hear from the young voters. Thanks very much. Just first name, thanks. Issues are important and sure. something for the panel. Thanks. Not sure if this is actually this is. Um, hi, my name is CY. Um, for me, probably climate change uh, and also, to be honest, constitutional change. Um, so, for example, Indigenous representation uh, in our constitution. Great. And a question for the panel? That's great. Do you have a question for the panel? 
Um, well, actually, my question was around that constitutional change dimension. So, um, you know, when the panel was talking about that, you know, national story going forward, you know, at least one of the major parties have come out strongly backing constitutional change uh, in terms of indigenous representation, in terms of changing Australia from a constitutional monarchy into a republic. I mean, I just wanted to ask, what, what, what would that mean for our national story and our national identity going forward uh, and our place in the world as well? Great question. Okay, who wants to take that? I think the most significant constitutional challenge right now is to give proper recognition to our Indigenous heritage. And um, I, I know we fall into a bit of a habit of acknowledging country, which I think is important, don't get me wrong, but it's not enough. We've got to acknowledge the significance of, our, of the first Australians in our constitution and legitimately solve the problem of Indigenous disadvantage. And I'm staggered that in this election campaign, it's barely got a mention. And, OK, though I noticed that the Labor Party at one stage said that we wanted to focus on giving Indigenous community a voice. Yet when I look at their costing for the next four years, there's zero in four years. Not a penny's to be spent on it. There's not a serious embracing of the challenge. More broadly, the issue of Republic. Um, you know, I've been a Republican since the beginning. I've watched it come and go. My wife is an arch-monarchist. She reckons all these young kids being born in the royal family are going to delay that process for decades. <coughs> and it's probably true. But, uh, you know, we do not have this sense of national purpose and national identity that we should have. Most of the debate you, you see in the election campaign has been about the interests of personal, personal interests or special interests I mean, a lot of forgetting of the national interest. And Thanks, I think if we legitimately started yeah. that debate, there's a lot of fronts we'd open up as a consequence You're of just thinking in those terms. Just very quickly, I think these issues of identity are important for where we stand in the world. I think that uh, it doesn't, you don't have to uh, go very deep into a conversation with uh, decision-makers uh, of countries in our region before you hit uh, a perception that Australia uh, generally is uh, a country that follows the lead of its uh, American and European allies and partners. Uh, and, it, it, you know, it doesn't... The, the sorts of evidence that are marshalled around this uh, go to things like, you know, the fact that there is a Union Jack on our flag, uh, the fact that uh, we have a British monarch as our head of state... Um, and a variety of other things. It doesn't help, for example, that uh, the Prime Minister lobs out an idea of uh, shifting our, uh, our embassy in Israel to Jerusalem shortly after Donald Trump has done exactly that. Um, this matters. It, it's actually uh, deeply important to where we stand in the world and whether we're able to, uh, to make our way in the world in an era post-American primacy, uh, whether we're taken seriously by countries that have established an independent foreign policy as a cornerstone of how they deal with the rest of the world. This is going to become much more important. So these issues of identity, of how we recognise not only our, um, uh, our Indigenous population but the multicultural nature of our population... Uh, and an independent way of looking at the world is going to matter more and more in the years ahead. Michael, thank you. We're going to stay with our young voters. I think we've got a question here, have we, from a young 
voter? Is there Unfortunately, yep. not a young voter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, thank you. That's very generous. Uh, just wanted to ask, uh, when you poll people, what are the policy issues that matter to them the most? Uh, for as long as I can remember, health will be in the top three. Um, along with uh, education and the economy. Uh, why don't you see health policy being more of an active battleground in elections, other than funding and Medicare? I can't remember an election where health has been really front and centre. Why don't you think we see uh, the parties litigating things like uh, co-payments, uh, the availability of bulk billing clinics, prescription drunk prices, that kind of thing? Why isn't it more active? We'll come to that in a second, Russell. We'll just get this question as well to add to it. Thanks. Is that someone there at the table? There we go. Um, hi. I was just wondering whether you thought that either party had any um, – uh, is really able to adequately address uh, youth concerns such as tertiary education, cost and funding, uh, asylum seekers and immigration and income inequality with real short-term and long-term solutions. Good question. So both good questions. So health policy, let's start with you, Russell, and then we'll look at the broader mm. policies um, involving cost funding, tertiary education, et cetera, et cetera. Thanks for that question. I, those are important discussions in government, and I know the governments do have those discussions. It's a difficult conversation because of the complexity of the issues to have at the doorstop type um, uh, campaign. And so I think things risk getting taken out of context, being misunderstood, and and the whole discussion coming down to the lowest common denominator. I was struck by how low health was on, on the priority list uh, in this election too. But I guess you know, probably it's subsumed somewhat into the primacy of climate change. And, and let me just say that I agree with Anna Greta that the, the number one health issue that we all face is climate change, which is global warming and, and the possible demise of humans as a species. Um, and let me be quite clear about that. I think we've got so many resources that in the country, but what we have is a longer coastline than any other country in the world, and what that means is there's more sand to bury our collective heads in. <laughs> <laughs> so what um, do you see a changing role for medicine in this question of climate change? Well, health is one of the, the things that should motivate us to change. And it hasn't been part of the discourse. You know, the, the, just purely the word climate change is a sanitised version of global warming. You know, what we're talking about is a hotter world and we can't live in it. Thanks very much, Russell. All right, so and going to that other question there about issues affecting young people, cost of tertiary education, inequality, et cetera, and the ability of parties to deal with that. Let's, we'll start with Michael and move down the table just to get closing comments as well as people think about the time between now being Tuesday, Saturday being voting day, and if you haven't voted already, um, what they might be thinking about in the next few days. Yeah, so look, I do think that there's a curious paradox about this election campaign, and this is a, an indirect way of answering your question, that issues such as intergenerational equity and climate change are obviously key in uh, voters' minds. Uh, they are resonating to some extent with the political parties as well. But what really worries me about each successive election campaign is that it becomes... Uh, an exercise in collective selfishness, that the parties kind of line up uh, to appeal to narrow self-interest as much as they can to really try and hit voters' hip-pocket nerves 
And what it does is it takes the attention away from the larger systemic issues that you're talking about. So the two issues that you raised, which was um, intergenerational equity, education um, and inequality, are real issues about the future of our country and the future of our society and the ability of us as a society uh, to stand tall on the world stage and to prosper into the future. Uh, we know that. Um, at, some, at some level, I think our political parties know that, but there's something about the electoral process that leads it back to this what's-in-it-for-me kind of mentality. And I think as long as that sort of mentality dominates politics and public policy, uh, we're not going to see much action on these sorts of issues. Thanks, Michael. And also, any closing comments? I'm, oh, go ahead, please. That's great. Um, also, uh, I'm going to ask each of the panellists too, just to give a little idea, very briefly, haven't really got enough time, what goals do you have for your institutes or colleges going forward in this term to engage in politics and policy? So, Michael, just before we move on, what, what do you have? What's your goal for, for your college? So we're in a college of Asia and the Pacific. Um, this is the most dynamic uh, region of the world. This is the re region of the world that will shape the world's future. Um, what I hope is to engage whatever side of politics wins government in a much deeper consideration of what that means and how Australia positions itself in this particular part of the world, both accounting for the risks that are coming our way but also taking advantage of the opportunities. Okay, thanks, Helen. Um, can you address the final question too about intergenerational inequality and the cost of education in terms of policy going forward and some goals of the um, Crawford Centre as the Centre for Policy Research in Australia? Uh, well, I think I've talked about uh, what Crawford's about and, and um, how, what, what's outlined in our uh, strategy. Um, I think the questions posed around intergenerational inequality. I mean, we haven't had a decent higher education policy in this country for as long as I've been in this country, um, and that's uh, coming up eight years. Um, it doesn't, we don't appear to be able to have a sensible conversation about tertiary education, and we certainly don't seem to be able to have a sensible conversation about whole-of-life education, which is really what we need to be doing. Um, and I think part of the, the questions that, that, that you're raising... Uh, what, what it points to is all of those things that are not being discussed, you know, the, the, the huge impact of um, the digital revolution on everything that we do, um, the fact that the world of work as we know it is going to transform completely. Hardly anybody in this election is talking about the gig economy and, and precarious work and what that means. Um, so I think there's, there's, there's certainly issues that are... Um, we don't know enough about and we don't pay enough attention to, probably because um, not enough of the vested interests are affected by them. And if I, I can just poke Russell a little bit here, and one of the things he didn't say, and I'm sure he'll disagree with me, um, one of the things he didn't say about why we don't get anywhere on health debate is that, you know, doctors and um, medics generally, they're pretty big lobbyists for not changing. Um, who, nobody loves a hospital more than a doctor. Um, so, you know, there's, there's something profoundly important about us. If we're really serious about health and thinking about health differently, then we have to work with doctors to get them to, you know, reduce their attachment to um, big kit and, and, and operating theatres. Uh, because that's not where, you know, that's, that's when the health policies failed. 
you know, if we didn't need that, that would be when we'd have some good health policy. And if I can just say finally, and I know I'm taking up too much time, um, I think if we don't address questions of First Nations peoples and what that, how Australia um, is going to acknowledge that in a, in a meaningful way, and we don't um, address the appalling situation that we have in terms of those asylum seekers who are still um, stuck on um, Anas and Nauru, then we, you know, we don't have a right to have a sense of a national identity because those things are shameful. Um, and, and that's, you know, it, that inhibits us of having a much clearer sense of what we might be as a society going forward. And I speak as somebody who doesn't get to vote. I'm not a citizen. So, um, I speak as a, as an outsider who thinks these things are, um, extremely important and, um, are, are just obvious to me as obstacles in the way of progress. Oh, thank you. Russell, uh, going forward towards this election anyway, what message do you have for people as they're thinking about issues to do with health between now and Saturday? Uh, well, firstly, I have to respond to Helen and just say I'm going <laughs> to take that one on the chin. Um, secondly, as, as the most recent member of the panel to join ANU, let, let me just say I'm immensely proud to be part of a, an organisation that takes so seriously the national discourse and the national wellbeing. Um, the College of Health and Medicine, which encompasses the Nobel Prize winning John Curtin School of Medical Research, the ANU Medical School, the Research School of Population Health and the Research School of Psychology, is distinguished by the fact we've got everything from sort of cutting-edge medical research through to mental health and social psychology and, and everything in between, which is key to understanding and, and, and moving forward as a, a health of a nation. And we take our national mission very seriously. We train people to be leaders in the health discourse. And in the research side, it's not just research excellence, but it's impact and engagement that are key to our future. And we look far forward to being part of the solution, whichever side of government we're working with. That's great. Thank you. Anna, what are your closing thoughts, given the approach of Election Day? People are thinking right now uh, about all these issues we've been discussing. From your perspective, a science perspective, astronomy perspective, a space perspective, what are your closing thoughts tonight? OK, that's a lot. Um, so I'll try and keep it short. Um, so um, I haven't said much about my own institute, so I will take this few minutes to do so. So um, at InSpace, uh, we're, um, we're focused on game-changing um, programs, things that put Australia ahead not in five years but in 30, 40, 100 years. So these are to do with laser communications, they do to do with space med tech, health of future generation of space travellers who will not be the fittest people in the world because they'll be the ones that can afford it. Um, it's to do with new technologies, uh, setting uh, the regulation side of its space law as well. So it's a fascinating institute to be at. I'm very fortunate to be at ANU because this kind of institute, which is multidisciplinary, is very difficult. You know, it's just very difficult to do anywhere else. The depth of capability at the university is quite remarkable. And so it, um, it made me want to step up and, do, and really do this role. Um, we've been really supported um, hugely by the ACT government, who's state government, who um, see the benefit of translating quickly what we have at the universities into local industry. And that's been really fascinating, and I thank them for their support. And so um, now I'm looking forward to really setting the national agenda as well and working with the federal government again after two years of doing so, to make sure that the rest of Australia as well is, is going to step up too. 
Thank you very much. Um, Anna, thanks for that. John Houston, you've obviously got your own general thoughts you'd like to uh, put to the audience, but I would like to ask you to comment in the final moments as well, if you can. The media in this campaign, what are your thoughts of the media, the Murdoch press particularly, over the last few weeks? And can you rate the performances of um, the, two, the two leaders and perhaps what they might have learnt from... Um, <laughs> This, this period. Um, Thanks. <clears throat> yeah. uh, just let me say one thing about intergenerational equity. I think it's a fundamental challenge in this country. And the fact that this election campaign has not provided solutions to issues like housing affordability and climate, um, tax and uh, transfer reform uh, and um, even national identity, it's intergenerational theft. We're making it much harder for the next generation and future generations to deal with any of these issues. And the longer we let that drift, the longer we play short-term politics and just score points rather than solve problems, the more we're stealing from the next generation. And uh, that frustrates me enormously in terms of, of this. To rate the two leaders, I mean, it was a race to the bottom. <laughs> they have dumbed down the entire election process, in my view, so that they both set out not to take too many risks. Not to say anything that might come back and bite them in the course of the campaign. So the bottom line of that is they say very little. The debates have been very much on slogans and messages, not substance of any of the policies that have been raised in those debates. So they, they don't score well. And I, it's not my view, it's the electorate's view. Both have got negative net satisfaction ratings. The electorate doesn't like either of them. Uh, and uh, it is the choice of the lesser of two evils. Unfortunately, in this democratic system that we have, once we've made that choice, we then have to live with the evil of two lessers. We don't have <laughs> the policies to carry this country forward. And that, that really is, a, I think, a major problem. Uh, I think in terms of my area, which is tax and transfer, I'd like to see broad-based tax and welfare reform. It's a fundamentally important element of what needs to be done. Unfortunately, the tax changes that were announced in this uh, campaign by both sides, just make that harder. You take a few concessions and you deal with those when there are a couple hundred billion dollars worth of concessions in an annual, in annual terms. I mean, you're only doing a little bit of the problem. And then within that, you take areas that are obviously neglected, like Newstart, which has stayed in Do real terms the same level for at least 20 years. And neither side can actually say we should be increasing that it's way below the poverty level on any measure of the poverty line that you want to use in this country. And that's a, blare, a, a glaring inequity, inequity in the, if you like, in the present system. That can be fixed by broad-based uh, um, tax and welfare reform. I know I'm an expert in this because I did lose the election on precisely that point. <laughs> and we won't, we won't be able to turn that around very easily. But it makes me wonder where some, whether some of these big issues, the elephant in the room type issues, are just too important to be left to day-to-day -day politics. And the idea of a health commission or a climate commission or a budget repair commission, whatever, may be the way it's got to go. Take it away from the day-to-day. -day. If they won't take it out and show leadership, then institutionally we might have to address how that should be done. Thanks for that. And just finally, uh, because you're in the media more than anyone else in the room, John, uh, just going back to that other question, what's just your final take I on the media? I didn't duck it. I just oh. didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> um, they, um, look, the media have distinguished themselves in this campaign. Certain elements of the media have run very hard in support of the government. News Limited Papers in particular, The Australian and The, uh, the Telegraph. 
had staggeringly biased coverage and um, front page stories and so on. Um, I guess in a world where the print media is suffering, they've decided to just identify their constituency as the hardline right and we'll just feed that. And that's uh, carried through to Sky News, particularly Sky After Dark, as I say, the monsters after dark. That's been constantly biased in its, in its coverage, supported by some shock jocks in the radio um, area, particularly New South Wales, but more broadly. So I don't think the media have generally distinguished themselves in this campaign. There hasn't been too much uh, investigative reporting. There hasn't been too much focus on the detail. And I think back to my time in politics, I can remember having to deal with maybe 30 consecutive questions on some element of the tax system in a press conference. Today you'll get one question, you'll move to somebody else with another subject and another, you know. So there is no scrutiny coming from the media. And in that sense, I don't think they've generally done the job they should be doing in this campaign. All right, great point to finish on. Thank you very much. Please thank our panel. Thanks. Oh, is this on? Yep. Thanks, Catherine and everyone, for a really uh, thoughtful and weighty discussion with some decent substance to it, which I gather from the number of people who've come tonight is something we've probably all been missing a little in this election. Um, and I have to say, John, as someone who uh, first worked on an election campaign in 1990 um, and, and has been a watcher of this ever since, I think it, you're, you're right that we, we are lacking uh, a capacity to have really substantial discussions and conversations on really substantial issues, seeing climate change as a, a clear issue that the population is concerned about, but one that is really struggling to have been um, a, a, sub, a, a discussion of any substance in this campaign has been kind of fascinating. Um, and I have to say, after listening to you and reading your endless op-eds, I think I probably, if I could go back now, I'd probably vote for you. Um, but I was campaigning on the other side, so that's way too late. 30 years too late. <laughs> 28. It's not quite 30 yet. Um, <laughs> but um, to everyone on the panel, thank you. It's one of the joys of working at ANU that we have uh, so many people of substance who bring uh, real thought to what they do and help bring to all of us uh, interesting ideas and questions that we should be thinking about when we go and vote on Saturday. So uh, I want to say thank you to you all. For those of you who haven't had enough of uh, uh, ANU discussions and thinking about policy matters and political matters uh, over the course of the campaign at the election series or tonight, it's all right. You can hop on our website uh, where you'll find the podcasts from the series of, uh, of election discussions. We've had a whole series of podcasts here with Mark Kenny, uh, who's in the room, and also a series of video discussions on weighty policy issues. So if you need more before Saturday, please go to our website and get more and make an informed decision. Uh, and I'd like to thank... Uh, uh, everyone on the panel, um, uh, for, so from John to uh, Anna, Russell, Helen and Michael, and, of course, thank you very much, Kath. Thank you all for coming tonight. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.